and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 14th of October with me Ian Welsh. Recently I spoke with Veronique Bouvet and Mila Nu from ProForest about some of their work preserving landscapes in Indonesia and in particular why successful outcomes are really determined by having all relevant parties involved and engaged. Plus in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Future of Plastics and Packaging Conference I recorded some mini interviews with some of the participants. So also coming up are comments from the Consumer Goods Forum's Ignacio Gavilan, Nestle's Jody Roussel and Camille Stefani and Sophie Vergucht from Eastman. No news this week, that'll be back next time. Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion, and we'll hear from the likes of Golden Agri Resources, Dole Food, Tesco, Natura, Kraft, Diageo and many more, and I do hope you can join us. And the Innovation Forum Autumn Webinar Programme continues. The next one is on the 25th of October, when I'll be joined by an online panel featuring Unilever, Microsoft and Golden Agri Resources, held in partnership with Chloris Geospatial. Full details and links to sign up for free are available on the Innovation Forum website. I was in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Future of Plastics and Packaging Conference. It was great to see so many familiar faces and to meet some new podcast listeners. Thank you for taking the time to come and say hello. While I was there, I managed to grab a few minutes with some of the conference panel participants. Coming up now are some quickfire comments from the Consumer Goods Forum's Ignacio Gavilan, Nestle's Jody Roussel, and Camille Stephanie and Sophie Vergucht from Eastman. Joining me now is Ignacio Gavilan, who's Director of Sustainability at the Consumer Goods Forum. Ignacio, when you started your session just now, you talked about the CGF being a collective action for positive change. So what are you doing in that regard on plastics and packaging? Basically, we started this journey back in 2017 when we committed to Ellen MacArthur Foundation and the Plastics Economy Global Commitment. So in support of that, we created a coalition of action that has now about 40 companies between retailers and manufacturers, some of the top brands. In essence, what we did is create three work streams. And in this particular order, because we believe it's the right one, the first is the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging, the second is EPR, the third is chemical recycling. So on the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging, we created nine golden design rules that go from PET to HTPE, everything that you can find in a supermarket. And these are relatively simple things like removing pigments, like removing headspace, eliminated unnecessary plastic packaging in those products where we can. So I believe most members welcome that. It's good guidance. It's been benchmarked. So members are implementing this in support again of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation uh, Global Commitment. Second one, EPR. Obviously, we need good systems in place for collection, for sorting and recycling. We do have a nice paper out with seven principles on what good or optimal EPR will look like. And we're advocating, or the companies are advocating for those in different geographies. We prioritize North America, Canada, US, then EU and UK, and also Vietnam and Indonesia. And the third element of all of this is chemical recycling. So we believe it's the only possible solution for hard to recycle plastic today. 99% of what gets recycled today is mechanical recycling and it can coexist. So there has to be complementarity of the two systems. We want mechanical to continue, we want mechanical to scale up, 
but we also need capacity when it comes to chemical recycling because all the flexible material is now ending in incinerators or even worse, the environment. And there certainly are some interesting <coughs> chemical recycling solutions coming on the market. Something you said earlier I thought was really interesting, you said there needs to be a realisation that we can't recycle our way out of the problem. Had there been a danger of that being a mindset that people had been, had, it was too, it was too prevalent, that people were thinking, right, we'll just recycle our way out of the new problem. That's why I purposely started with the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging. We don't want recycling to be the only solution. So it has to start with a reduction of virgin material and uh, making our plastic packaging more efficient and then chemical recycling. So Great, well thanks. That's been made it very clear. Thank you Ignacio Gavilan from Consumer Goods Forum. Thank you so much Ian. Joining me now is Jodie Roussel, Global Public Affairs Lead for Packaging and Sustainability with Nestle. Welcome Jodie. Thank you Ian. We were just talking on a panel looking at legislation as an opportunity and what business can do to utilise regulation to drive effective action. From Nestle's perspective, how are you using regulation to drive action? To put it into context, the food and beverage industry is a regulated industry. And this regulation ensures a level playing field, fair distribution of responsibilities, and also the opportunity for a sharing of responsibilities, particularly in the scope of EPR fees and other types of legislation. Now, Nestle is a company that thrives on good regulation, and we see it as a tool to enable action by an entire industry, not just first movers, for everyone to get involved making the systems changes that we see are necessary for the future. When we look at driving regulation further and faster, I'll give you a snapshot of the current state of regulation. We are observing both national laws being developed as well as some draft laws. So in the case of EPR, there are 58 national laws in place today, 37 in draft. For reuse and refill, 18 national laws in place, six in draft. For deposit return, 31 national laws and 22 in draft form. If you add those in addition to laws that have been passed but have not yet been implemented, we actually see a tremendous amount of action happening at the national level and sometimes also at the local level to support a new infrastructure that will enable the management, collection, sorting, and recycling or reuse of post-consumer packaging. EPR, of course, being extended producer responsibility. Bring that in mind, what do you think that good regulation should look like? At Nestle, we've taken a lot of voluntary actions that can show the way forward for good regulation. Um, some we do on our own, such as our negative list, identifying voluntary materials that we've identified to phase out. The Consumer Goods Forum's golden design rules, of which we're a partner and we're also working to implement, supporting norms for paper recyclability or sustainable sourcing. We also support, in addition to extended producer responsibility and deposit return schemes, we're a strong supporter of the movement forward to negotiate a UN treaty on plastics to ensure all material is collected and sorted and recycled. Many countries today lack formalized collection and sorting systems. And we know that there are deliberate choices coming up on the horizon for policymakers to make. We see them really as playing the role of framing a canvas. And then we businesses can come and paint the picture on that canvas based on the framework that they build. And those are based on societal objectives. In terms of the UN treaty and the opportunity that this presents to us, we've supported a, a coalition being developed, the Business Coalition for a Global Plastics Treaty, which is a group of businesses forming to support comprehensive action on the full life cycle of plastics by regulators. This is facilitated by the World Wildlife Federation and also the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We see in the future, in the near term, a lot of discussion on national action plans that will take place following the treaty. We need leadership action to support 
the changes that a treaty can create in a system moving to a future where we produce what we can collect and recycle, where we manage the collection and reuse or recycling of materials, and we're also looking at how legacy waste can be cleaned up to prevent any pollution of the environment. But the benefits for business are tremendous if we have such a treaty in the future and national action plans, the ability to plan product and factory investments, clear direction from governments about the roadmap ahead for materials use and industrial priorities, as well as potentially harmonizing standards and metrics so we can create economies of scale as we look to the materials of the future. There's no doubt that the possibility of a Global Plastics Treaty is really exciting and the number of opportunities will spring from it, no doubt, as well as the inevitable challenges. Jody Roussel from Nestle, thanks for taking us through some of them and thanks for your time today. Thank you, Ian. Joining me now are Camille Stefani, Sustainability Manager, and Sophie Verhoot, Strategic Initiatives Manager for the Circular Economy, EMEA at Eastman. Welcome to you both. We have just in a session looking at recycling infrastructure and particularly looking at your technology. Camille, why don't you give us an introduction to what it is that Eastman are doing? So Eastman is a materials innovation company and we are basically pivoting our strategy of using fossil-based feedstocks to using plastic waste as a feedstock to make our existing product lines. We have a process called polyester renewal technology where we are basically taking hard to recycle polyester waste which would otherwise end up in incineration or in landfills and we are taking that, depolymerizing that and using those building blocks again to build up the same plastics, the same polyesters and the great thing about this is that it's complementary to mechanical recycling because we can take stuff that they cannot use and we are actually making a virgin quality, food grade quality product out of that. We last year announced to invest in a facility in our headquarters in Kingsport in Tennessee where we are building a 100 kiloton methanolysis process in front of our existing production assets. And actually earlier this year we announced together with President Macron in France that we are investing up to 1 billion US dollars to build the world's largest molecular recycling facility in France using that polyester renewal technology. And Sophie, what's the scalability of the process? To let our technology flourish, to let it do what we would like it to do at scale, we need three crucial things. Uh, first one is a legislative framework which is clear, which is harmonized and which is hopefully common sense based uh, to ensure us a long-term license to operate. Second point is collaboration across the value chain. So we are very open to engage with all different kind of stakeholders who are part of the debate. And third one is better infrastructure. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest bottlenecks that we are currently facing. So we need to have better infrastructure in order to better sort, better collect and do further processing of the waste. I think there's more than waste enough, but we would like to use it for different streams, for different recycling technologies. Those are what, that's what will facilitate scale, but what is the ultimate ambition? How big can this process be, do you think? Yeah, I think chemical recycling will have a specific part in the waste hierarchy. Yeah? So, of course, we are completely agree with reduce, reuse, refill, repair, mechanical recycling. And we are kind of the, the last resort, but I think an important last resort. Uh, and we would be very happy if when our facility is built within a few years that it can work starting from the beginning at the fullest potential and so consume the 160,000 tons of polyester waste from Europe. It certainly feels that there's been an acceptance in the room here today that chemical recycling, which has had its detractors in the past, but it does feel that um, there's an acceptance that it is part of the overall solution to dealing with plastic waste and that we need innovation and exciting ideas, much like yours, to help solve the problem. For now, thank you very much to Camille and Sophie from Eastman. Thank you. 
couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Veronique Beauvais, Senior Project Manager, and Mila New, Southeast Asia Regional Landscape Coordinator at ProForest, about some of their landscape-level projects in Indonesia. Well, we're going to be talking a bit about ProForest's work in Indonesia. Veronique, why don't you start us off by giving an overview of what ProForest is up to in Indonesia? ProForest has been working in Indonesia for the past uh, 10 years and mainly with regards to supporting clients who are sourcing and then in particular palm oil from Indonesia. So we have been supporting these clients initially in the first years that we were in Indonesia by engaging with their suppliers, looking into where the areas that they're sourcing and working with suppliers to work on deforestation-free supply chains, work and support on human rights, etc. but very specific link to their supply. So this, for example, also meant conducting HEV assessments like high conservation value and carbon stocks. So this was looking into where in the areas that they're sourcing from are the areas to conserve. We did also support work with smallholders, but very specifically, again, linked to their supply. And then over time, realizing that there were underlying root causes and that collaboration was actually needed in order to address these root causes. So about five years ago, we started to work on collaborative programs. And then we also started to work on developing what we call landscape programs, where we work together with multiple stakeholders, local government, etc. Our work is mainly linked initially to palm oil, but since the last years, we have actually also started to work on responsible sourcing of cocoa and looking into landscape programs around cocoa as well. Mila, perhaps you can give us more of an overview of some of the specific challenges in Indonesia that you're focused on tackling. First challenge, the biggest challenge actually, uh, deforestation. And as you probably know that in 2015, we have the largest tragic massive of forest fires in Indonesia. It was actually the the largest in the past 18 years, and then approximately 2.6 million hectares land burn, and then economic loss estimated around like 220 trillion rupiah. And then more than 500 people suffer from acute respiratory infection. 30% of the total area burn was a peatland. So most of it actually in the context of Riau is in Siak and Palawan. So they are also in part of Kalimantan also burned during that forest fire. That was actually the main reason why then company come to Siak and Palawan to see that the need to support smallholder, which is Siak and Palawan, their area of sourcing. That's one thing. And the second one is the smallholder inclusion is the biggest issue as well that we're trying to tackling, where we need to improve the capacity of the smallholders and then community surrounding as well as their livelihood. Part of that also issue of land title where there are many of the uh, smallholders in Indonesia, they actually don't have a land title and some of them help have their land within the protected areas. So that's that's an issue that right now is still ongoing in Indonesia and many parts of Indonesia, not just in Siak and Palawan. Another challenge that we're also trying to address and work with other organizations is addressing a human rights issue, especially on the labor and workers, actually human rights workers. You have a number of ongoing projects in Indonesia. One of those is in Singaulinau, the Singaulinau Landscape Conservation and Livelihoods Programme. What is this trying to achieve, Veronique? 
Well, I think it links very much to what Mila was just mentioning with regards to the fires and protection of forest. We basically started this project. I was just referring to the fact that we were encouraging collaboration by two companies looking into addressing some of the root causes and trying to work in a particular village called Sungaili now to work on avoiding deforestation and working with the farmers. We then realized we need to collaborate with other agents and started to work and collaborate here with the peat restoration agency in Indonesia, which was set up partly to address the issues of fires and rehabilitation of peat. And they have a program which is called the Peat Care Village Program, which we started to collaborate on in Sungaili now. But then we took a more holistic approach and rather than just looking at the restoration and rehabilitation of the peat areas in this village, also work on these wider commitments that the companies that are sourcing palm uh, from these areas have. So also looking into protecting forests, avoiding deforestation, improving palm practices and good agricultural practices to produce palm and addressing any specific human rights issues. So looking at land titles, we looked and implemented this at the village level, are working with the local community. So we took a very bottom-up approach. We were introduced into the village by the Speed Restoration Agency and the Peat Care Village Programme. We extended this program with modules on raising awareness of the importance to protecting also forests. So we took a very bottom-up approach, working with the village community there, doing participatory mapping. So we basically developed a land use plan at the village level, looking into where are the areas to rehabilitate, areas to conserve and also about alternatives to producing palm, so alternative crops, and very much building on structures that this peat restoration agency, the BRG, already had, amongst others, like fire, village, community, etc. So we're trying to take a holistic approach, working with the communities very bottom-up to map and develop a land use plan, embed this into village-level regulation, and then started to later think about how can we scale it up. But that was the principle and the start of this Sungai now program. And we are now working in four villages, so we have replicated this in four villages surrounding Sungai now. Why is the involvement of local communities so important here? The role of local community is actually a key because especially indigenous community, they are the guardian of the forest, right? In the case of the smallholders, actually, they depend their life in the forest and also in their land. And then we know that to improve the livelihood of the smallholders could potentially reduce the risk of land conversion, which potentially threatens the wildlife forest and also the biodiversity. And we know that globally, around more than 3 million smallholder and small-scale farmers make a living from palm oil globally. So that's why their role actually in protecting the forest and biodiversity is key in this context. And they need support to improve their capacity, to support the good agriculture, and also how they organize themselves, and then to get certification and that kind of thing. And I think that a community play a very important role in uh, protecting the forest and biodiversity and to reduce deforestation. So, Veronique, what are the outcomes of the project, perhaps to think about now and in the future? It's sort of this bottom-up participatory way of having a land use plan at the level of the village that basically includes the restoration of the peat areas, has livelihoods improvement, looking into alternative livelihoods and 
also trying to scale this up. So I think it's really the communities own and are engaged and improve practices so that they sort of help and can meet the companies also one so that they can be included. As Mila said at the beginning, there is smallholder inclusion. So that means they need to meet specific requirements and to ensure protection of forest whilst improving livelihoods. A challenge is that we have these commitments now to say, okay, we will preserve these forests, etc. But incentives need to be delivered to those communities to ensure in the long term that they will not convert, which we'll partly be able to do by sort of alternative livelihoods. But I think at the same time, yeah, thinking about longer term incentives, how to deliver them, etc. is something we're still working on addressing. To what extent then do you think that there's an acceptance now that preserving forests and ecosystems within existing working landscapes is actually an essential compromise that can actually work in practice? I think it can definitely work because, as we said, we're starting bottom-up, so there's this realisation and the will of communities as well. But I think we also need to be realistic that sometimes it's economically more interesting to convert, etc. It's that realisation that we need to think about incentives so that farmers and the local communities actually do that. So that's also why we're taking a village-level approach, that that's entire communities owning the whole process to decide on what to do with the land. But they need support in sometimes getting the right land titles so that they can get loans, et cetera, et cetera, and guidance on alternative livelihoods, et cetera. So we need to all work together in order to achieve this because there's issues that need involvement and support from the government as well. You're also working in a project in SIAC and Pedalalwan. So what are the lessons learned from Sungai Linau that you're putting into practice in these other projects? Well, we're basically taking... The same approach, the whole Siak and Palalawan program is structured or the heart of it is also what we call this village support program. So we've replicated what we have done in Sungai Linau, which is also we work with what we call village facilitators. Those are people that are trained amongst others by the Speed Restoration Agency with additional modules that are based in the villages. So we are replicating this process. I think villages see success in other villages in terms of how it works and the village facilitators are located in the villages and can thus easily replicate and work in multiple villages. So we have in three years time now replicated this process. We are now working in 25 villages in the districts of Siak and Palalawan. But what is different here is that we are also engaging and working with the district level government. So these villages are located in the district and we're trying to make a link to the district level governments and both districts, SIAC has what they call a green SIAC decree, which means they have committed to green growth. So we're trying to make the linkages in terms of how are these villages nested within the district. And in Palalawan, the government has adopted and gone through the whole process of developing what they call a district action plan for sustainable palm oil. So there's at the national level of Indonesia, an action plan for sustainable palm oil. And this is to be implemented in the districts. Palalawan has done that. So we're trying to make these linkages. So taking the lessons learned from Sungailino at the village, but nesting that and integrating that into a district level. Mila, what more can you tell me about the aims of the SIAC and the Palalawan projects? What are the challenges that you're seeing on the ground there? We're trying to achieve four goals, as some of them already mentioned. First is we're trying to protect forest and peatlands because you know that more than 50% of the Siak and Palawan are peatland. 
and then most of the palm oil in Siak and Palawan actually in the pitland area. So this is a very critical to ensure that there is no pitland actually open for palm oil. So uh, we need to protect that. And then the second one is to improve the capacity of the smallholders and also a community that live in surrounding and then in, ensure that their livelihood can be fulfilled as well. And then the third one is to promote human rights issues. We work with uh, companies and then also other organizations to raise awareness of not just companies, but also the local government, how to address the human rights issue within the companies and then within the plantation area as well. So there are some programs that we are doing like a social dialogues. We work with uh, local government in addressing, so raising awareness, basically we are in the stage of raising awareness about the importance of addressing this uh, human rights issues. And then the last one, this is also a quite a critical in terms of building and facilitating multi-stakeholder platform where uh, companies and also government and also civil society can really have a genuine conversation to discuss about the different interests and conflicted interests in the landscape. So that's, that's a quite challenging actually to do. I think that we know the importance of multi-stakeholders in raising understanding about what needs to be done. And we know the important the role of government in terms of producing policy and also addressing some issue related to land title. So I think that a lot of initiatives that right now are supporting the Green Sea, for example, and also the District Action Plan and Palawan are really key to have a space for all of the stakeholders to have a talk actually to discuss this issue. Are there any particular challenges you'd like to highlight then and that you have to be overcome to achieve success? Right now we're trying to helping the smallholders to get a certification. We know that that regarding the uh, there is a lot of land issue in the ground and then that's not the area that within the authority of uh project actually can address. So that's the area where government, local government can address those, those issues. So we can help to identify, helping the smallholder to identify their land and that kind of thing. And then we need to bring the issue in the ground to the government and then ask government to kind of like address this issue. So because that's within the authority of government to do so. I'd like to find a little bit more about your partners on the project. So Veronique, who are your project partners in Siak and Pelaloban? Well, we are basically Proforest is together with Demeter, sort of more facilitating the entire program, so coordinating, etc., on behalf of eight palm oil sourcing companies who support the program. So it's a collaboration of eight companies. So there is a joint work plan, etc. But we work local organizations who implement all the activities. So we have a joint work plan and are working with Windrock, who's working in the villages to look at alternative livelihoods, do this peat restoration, etc., that we talked about before, providing and working on demonstration plots. We work with for example, the local staff available from one of the companies that's supporting the program, Musimas, who is on the ground implementing their village support program, working and training the village, the sort of the farmers, the palm oil farmers, etc. We work and train, for example, with WRI, the village extension service officers, so like workers from the government, from the local government to track and look at deforestation alerts. We work with a local organization called JKPP, who does this participation mapping that I mentioned. I was already mentioning we work a lot in our village program where we are dependent on what we call these local village facilitators. And for example, also with an organization called ASPUK, 
who help us with gender-specific issues and mapping in the villages that we work with. But we also work with an organization called CNV. Mila was mentioning the various labor-related issues. So one of the key challenges is that, for example, there's a lack of awareness on what the rights of the workers are. They often do not even know what their rights are. So we are working with an organization to help build the capacity and strengthen the capacity of the local trade unions and raise awareness that these exist and workers can. So that's just a range of organizations that we're working with on the various aspects. Mila, you mentioned before a bit about the collaboration with government. Why is collaborating with government so important and what are the keys to doing that effectively? There are so many issues that only can be tackled and addressed by governments, like a policy, land right issue and that kind of thing, especially. And then uh, that's why I think that collaboration with the local government and also the national government are really important because there are some bottlenecks that only can address by them. Right now, we're helping also, we're trying to align what the Siak and Palawan government is trying to do with the national government initiative as well. For example, that the district action plan is actually part of the national action plan program as well. Actually allocated for the local government to implement the program for sustainable palm oil at the district level. So that's why to address this issue and then to open space for the local government and then the national government to see that there is a commitment from both but uh, there is a lack of resources and then how we together can address and then find a solution for this. So that's why the role of private sector also key in this context to help the government to support some of the program that right now is lack of resource. And then we're trying to, like Veronique just mentioned that our program in Sungali now and also in Siak and Palawan, we're trying to support the government program, but there are many issues in the ground that only can be tackled by the national government and also the local government. At different level, government have their own authority to address those issues and they need to come together actually to see which area that actually can be addressed by each of the level of the government. Clearly, when you have such a project involving many stakeholders, information, transparency, very, very important. So, Vernik, I wondered if you had any thoughts on how information flow from such projects can be best managed to ensure necessary transparency and then that will then lead it hopefully to progress. Yeah, thanks. And I think that's a really good question and a challenge because I was indeed saying how with how many partners we work. So we work first at the village level. So we have lots of information data available that we collect from the farmers, etc. at the village level on land title. We work also with mills. So there we have mapped all the mills that are located in the areas, tracking progress of the mills to deliver that they are deforestation free, meet all the requirements of respecting human rights. The data currently is scattered via and sits with different organizations, the village facilitators, the mills, or even the companies working with the mills. So what we are trying to do is have a data system at the level of the districts so that all this data can be aggregated. And this is important because if we are thinking about landscape programs, we're also trying to measure at the level of the district as a whole is also considered responsible and sustainable. And this is, I think, becoming more important as companies are also funding these efforts and thus they want to be able to link it to sourcing and their commitments Thus, there is this whole information flow that is relevant for the companies to use if they mention how it links to their commitments, but also for the districts. So what we are 
trying to do is work for everything at the district government. So it sits at the district. So we're working with the government on setting up a system. It's a challenge, but we think it's needed in order to be able to report at this scale, as you said, in a transparent way, so that it can meet the multiple reporting needs that, for example, the district government has, because they want to report to the national government. They want to report on the sustainable development goals, whereas companies need the same data to report on how it meets and helps meet their commitments. That can only happen if you have a good system that is able to aggregate the data and able to combine the data that is currently scattered. So it's a challenge, but it's something we are working with and it needs again this collaboration with the government. Mila, do you have any further comments on that? The necessity for good information flow and how that's best managed? Right now, at the national level, the government is trying to promote district sustainability at the jurisdiction level. And then they work with EFI, European Forest Institute, to use the Terpercaya. Terpercaya is actually a, like a platform to assess sustainable achievement or progress at the district level. This requires a lot of periodic dispensation data availability in order for the local government to submit the report to the national government. Hopefully, by working with local government closely in order to provide this data and monitor the data and then can help the local government to provide data that they need to be reported to the national governments. That's a crucial uh, data monitoring and management for the local government. The system is not yet there. And then like Veronique just said, it's a very challenging right now. So I think that working in a specific district like Asiak and Palawan and use this as a prototyping and model for that, that would be that's a good start. Mila, what future projects do you have coming up in Indonesia? We are actually trying to do a similar goals like protect the natural ecosystem and also improve the capacity of the smallholders and then their, their livelihood as well. Right now, we're exploring collaboration with GIZ in Kutai Timur, which is that's in East Kalimantan. That's for palm oil. And as for cocoa, we are right now exploring collaboration with Mondelez in Lampung in Sumatra for a sustainable cocoa in the region, the area. What ultimately then will success look like? If we can showcase that we can actually protect a forest and biodiversity in a landscape where that actually showing an effort, collaboration between government, private sector, and also CSO and local community, if a landscape that would be good, but in, maybe if we can achieve in a couple of villages, that's already a great success. Verne, do you want to comment further? I would agree on that. And I would say have a model. I think it's sort of alignment on what is forest and people positive for the local communities. So it benefits the local communities, conserve, restore forests, ensure that it improves livelihoods, but aligns with the district government's needs, company needs, etc. But really have a model where that is incentivized and it does benefit the local community because you asked earlier what's the role of the local communities i think it's essential it's bottom up that's where the impact is needed so we can talk about what the companies need but ultimately that's where the change needs to happen so if we are able to develop and have models where that is incentivized the impact that we are all looking for that's what we are ultimately aiming to achieve that these incentives are actually delivered mila do you want to come back in this is the biggest challenge in doing all of this. The work that we're trying to do is actually to provide a space 
of collaboration and then uh, for multi-stakeholder to really have a generative conversation, uh, open conversation to discuss about all of these systemics and dynamic issue in more open and then transparent and then trying to find a solution together. That's not yet happened, but if we can actually provide a space where all of these stakeholders can really have that kind of conversation, it's tough and then it's uncomfortable. If we are all of the stakeholders willing to really sit down together to discuss about this, about this uh, systemic and then complex issue, that would be a great success. That's how I see success as well. We cannot work alone. We have to work together in order to address this uh, complex issue. Well, it's been fascinating hearing about your work in Indonesia. So thank you very much for all your insight and candor over the past 30 minutes or so. But for now, Veronique Bouvet and Mila Nu from ProForest, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. And you can hear more from Veronique Bouvet at the upcoming Sustainable Landscapes and Communities Forum in Amsterdam in a few weeks' time. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all you need to know about that event and the latest analysis and interviews. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. <laughs>